Genesis 41. Genesis 41, at the beginning, Joseph is still in the pit of prison, and by the end of this chapter, he will be Pharaoh's right-hand man. Uh, It's a long chapter, uh, and I don't intend to read the entirety of it, 57 verses, uh, but we're going to work through it here as we read, and I'll bypass a couple of sections that we'll cover during the sermon. But let's pick up the reading here in Genesis 41, beginning in verse 1. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile, and the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time, and behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears, and Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men, Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night, he and I each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. And Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So the dream is uh, retold, and Joseph interprets the dream to mean that there will be seven years of famine or seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. And down in verse 32, we read on, and Joseph is saying, the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine." 
This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck and he made him ride in his second chariot and they called out before him, Bow the knee! Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonath Peniah. And he gave him in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Uh, Joseph has two sons, which we will think about here in a few moments. Jump down to verse 55 and we'll read the conclusion of this chapter. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses And sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Well, this day must have started just like any other day for Joseph in prison. Woke up in the same prison began the same routine that he carried out each and every day in prison. And as he languished away day after day, knowing that he had been forgotten now for two whole years, we can imagine many questions that ran through Joseph's mind. Why has my life taken this turn? Why do people seem to keep disappointing me? Why does it seem like when my life is finally beginning to take a turn for the better, that then things just get worse? And why does it seem like God does not hear my prayers for help? But on this day, everything in Joseph's life is about to change. This is the day that God has been getting Joseph ready for. If you take the approach of inclusive dating from 17 to 30, it's been 14 years of suffering and slavery and imprisonment for Joseph. And that's all going to change in a matter of a few hours. It's a reminder, dear friends, that God is often at work slowly in our lives And God is able to work in matter of moments like that when he chooses to do so. 
the last 14 years of Joseph's life have been getting Joseph ready for the next 14 years of seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. So this is a story about how God works in his, in his own way, in his own time, at his own, in his own pace, in order to get his people ready for service and fruitfulness. It's taken 14 years to get Joseph here, but now Joseph's time in the pit comes to a sudden and dramatic end. He goes from the pit to the peak. And so today I want us to ask, what, what has the Lord been doing, at least by our reckoning, what has the Lord been doing slowly in Joseph's life? I think we find several answers. We find answers by looking at the character of Joseph that God has developed. And, and in, the, in the names he gives to his sons, we learn how Joseph has made sense of his painful and difficult experiences. He thought, he thought hard about the question, what is God up to in the pits and peaks of my life? And as we look at Joseph's answers to that important question, I think we will be challenged to think about the meaning of our own sufferings in this, in this dysfunctional and at times deeply, deeply disappointing world. So this is the question we're asking today. What has God been doing? Yes, by our reckoning, slowly, but surely in Joseph's life. And the first thing is that God has made Joseph into a humble man who trusted in his God. Pharaoh dreamed two dreams. The dreams are familiar to us. In his first dream, there are two sets of uh, seven cows. The first group were attractive and plump. The second group were ugly and thin. And the ugly and thin cows devoured the attractive and plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, awoke no doubt disturbed, but goes back to sleep. And then he dreams yet again. And this time there are seven uh, ears of grain that are attractive and plump, followed by seven uh, uh, ears that are, are blighted. And the blighted ones devour or overcome the seven attractive and plump ears. And no doubt this time Pharaoh awakes in a cold sweat and loses a little bit of sleep over it. Because we read that in the morning, the first thing he did was he called all of the wise men and magicians in Egypt to come and interpret his, his dreams. But no one was able to interpret them. And isn't it interesting, interesting at this point, this is when the cupbearer remembers Joseph. You see, you see God's perfect timing in all of the story, don't you? He actually felt a, a sting of conviction that he had forgotten about Joseph. And so he says to Pharaoh, I, I, I've just remembered a couple of years ago when, when I was in prison, there was a man who interpreted my dream and and the baker's dream, and, and everything he said came exactly true. I was restored to service, and the baker was put to death. And so men are sent to retrieve Joseph. Joseph is cleaned up and quickly brought before Pharaoh. And here he is, think about this, standing before the most powerful man in the world. 
And one of the first things he hears from Pharaoh's mouth is, I've heard it said that when you are told a dream, you are able to give its interpretation. Just think about the temptation that must have come along with that statement. Joseph very easily could have gone along with what Pharaoh was suggesting here, giving credit to himself as being the one who was the solution to Pharaoh's dilemma, his, his troubles, the troubles of his mind. But instead, what do we see? We see a marvelous humility and an amazing trust in his God. Actually, it's in Hebrew, it's emphatic. After Pharaoh says, I've heard when you hear a dream, you can give his interpretation. Joseph's response is a single word that literally means it is not me. That's the first thing Joseph says. But the Lord, God, will give Pharaoh an answer. You see, that's such a contrast to the younger Joseph that we first met when he had his own, uh, his own dreams. Everyone was bowing down to him and the attention was all on Joseph and how one day his brothers and all of his family members would bow down and serve him. It was all about Joseph. But you see, God has taught Joseph humility. His life is now God-centered, not self-centered. And as a result, Joseph didn't promote himself. Even after all of the hardships that Joseph has been through, Joseph put the limelight on God, not himself, because he trusted God to protect and to provide. So friends, it's worth asking the question, what what does it reveal about our hearts uh, when we boast in ourselves? When we put all the attention upon us? I think it indicates at least that we aren't really trusting in God to protect and to provide for us and we don't regard him as the one that we are called to to live for and please. But you see, Joseph, he's an amazing lesson here because he has, in prison, in the midst of his suffering, he has learned the freedom that comes through humble trust in God. You don't have to perform for people. You don't have to make it all about you. You don't have to boast because if you remember that God is your audience that he is the one you are living for, then you can, you can trust him with your life, with your circumstances, and you will be able to give him the, the credit he rightly deserves. You will put him in the limelight and not yourself. Here's the second thing we see God has been doing in Joseph's life. I couldn't come up with a condensed way of, of writing this out, so here's what I have. Uh, bold God-centeredness and a persevering faith through difficulty. God has made Joseph into a man who has a spirit of boldness because he is God-centered and he has a spirit of perseverance in the midst of difficulty. Pharaoh recounted his dreams to Joseph. Joseph gave the interpretation seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. Now, imagine 
Imagine giving someone like Pharaoh that kind of of news. (laughs) Knowing that if I say something he doesn't like, he he can send me right back into prison. Or I could end up like the baker. And have my head removed from me. What, what Joseph says to Pharaoh here actually took a great amount of courage. Because in Egyptian culture at that time, Pharaoh was himself understood to be the embodiment of a god. And supposedly his power was what balanced natural forces and ensured the prosperity of Egypt. <laughs> now here's Joseph standing before the Pharaoh and, and he is confronting him with the reality that he is not in control of the future. But the God that Joseph worships is. Joseph's bold God-centeredness comes through again and again in this passage. Verse 25, speaking to Pharaoh, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Verse 28, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Verse 32, the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God. And God will shortly bring it about. You see, Joseph sees God as the primary director and the primary actor in all of this. It's a helpful reminder, I think, to us that leaders, politicians... Presidents, prime ministers, even dictators are not the ones making history. Our our God is the Lord of history. History is in his hands. And that is the source of, of Joseph's boldness to speak these truths to Pharaoh. He knows God runs the universe. He knows God is working out his purposes in the world. But you see, God's sovereignty never compromises human responsibility. And that's why Joseph now lays out a plan before Pharaoh that is equally bold in order to deal with this coming famine. Um, He advises Pharaoh to appoint someone who's reliable and wise to oversee and direct this, this famine relief project. And the very first order of business was, let's institute and establish a 20% tax on everyone's uh, harvested grains in an agrarian society. (laughs) One-fifth of everything the people in Egypt produce goes to Pharaoh, and he doesn't even need it right now. It's going to go into a storehouse for a time when we will need it. Friends, let's not make the foolish mistake of of believing that we're the only people in the history of the world who are opposed to tax increases. This this would have undoubtedly been an unpopular decision made on Joseph's part. It would have taken serious perseverance to put this plan into action and to see it through. You see, God has prepared Joseph to be the right man at the right time, a man who is not not arrogant but bold because he has a profoundly God-centered view of history, a man who's not chicken-hearted in the face of difficulty because he trusts in God, because he knows that same God governs history. He can say and do bold things for God and see those things through. 
You see, God, God has made Joseph into a man with moral and, and spiritual backbone. That's what God has been doing in Joseph's life these last 14 years. Here's a, here's a third thing. Joseph has become a discerning and wise servant of God. And this is so evident that the text tells us it's the Egyptians who notice this in Joseph's life. Uh, Joseph is a man of unusual discernment. They ask, can we find a man like this in, in whom is the Spirit of God? Pharaoh asks that question and goes on to say in verse uh, 38, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. That's another radical transformation in Joseph from when we met him at the age of 17. Because when Joseph was 17, he lacked wisdom and discernment. He, he came to his brothers and spoke those words, though being true, or words spoken out of season, without wisdom, without discernment, without thinking how his words would impact his, his family and only serve to stir up strife and jealousy and anger amidst his family relationships. So he doesn't, he doesn't think about the impact of his words because he was too insensitive and self-absorbed. And when you're, when you're insensitive and self-absorbed, you can't be wise and discerning because you're oblivious to the way that your words affect others. But you see, the Lord has taught Joseph discernment. And throughout this encounter, this is really worth a study in and of itself. As Joseph interprets the dream and lays out a plan before Pharaoh, it's a marvelous display of godly, godly wisdom and discernment in the way in which Joseph speaks. And my friends, I think as Christians, this is often something we don't give enough attention to. Like the, like the Proverbs that say a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a fitting of silver. How we need wisdom and discernment in our speech lest we speak unwisely without discernment and only stir up strife and envy among the family of God. Just because of God's work in Joseph's life, which again, even the Egyptians were able to see and they were struck by. Pharaoh set Joseph over all of Egypt. He made Joseph the man to see this plan through. And everything went as Joseph said it would. Uh, and under his direction, we, we read as well that, uh, that the grain was stockpiled to, for, well, for seven years. And it was coming in in such abundant amounts that Joseph even had to stop keeping record because there was just so much of it. So during this time of prosperity, I think that the story raises this question if we think about it. How, how did Joseph process this incredible and drastic change in his life? How, how did Joseph think about going from prisoner to prime minister, from the pit to the peak of power? And I think the story tells us how Joseph was thinking about all of this with the names he gave his two sons during that time. And that, that leads us to the fourth thing I want us to think about, the fourth way God worked in Joseph's life. And here it is. God made Joseph forgetful of his hardships 
and fruitful in the land of his affliction. God made Joseph forgetful and fruitful. See that in the names of his two sons. He named his first son Manasseh. We read that in verse 51. Because God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. And he named his second Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So let's think about that for a minute together. What do these two names teach us? They teach us first of all that God was active in Joseph's life this whole time. God was active in Joseph's life. And now God was making Joseph forget his hardships and he was making him fruitful in the land of his afflictions. But my friends, isn't it, isn't it our failure to remember this important truth that God is active in our lives? Isn't that often the source of so much trouble in our thinking and in our Christian walks. You know, we, we know we're doing things, whether, whether good or evil, and we know others are doing things, whether, whether for or against us, but so often we can forget that primarily God is the, the governor of our lives, directing our paths, leading us in the way that he wants us to go. And the overarching reality then of the believer's life is that our lives are being shaped by God who is at work in particular ways according to his purposes. I think there's another lesson here though by giving his sons these two names. Joseph was recognizing, yes, first of all, that all this time God was active in his life. None of that was meaningless. None of it was going to go to waste. None of it was without purpose. Friends, so too, so too in our lives, God is directing and shaping everything, the, the pain as well as the joy to accomplish his purposes in us and through us. And Joseph had, had come to learn that, and it was crucial to his peace and his faith in, in the midst of otherwise crushing circumstances. What's the second thing, though, we learned from these names? Well, notice the irony of naming one son forgetful. <laughs> yeah, we can, we can understand why Joseph would want to forget his difficult and painful past. But names and their, and their meanings are perpetually remembered. So, so what, think about this. Calling his son Manasseh actually guaranteed... They, the perpetual remembrance of his forgetfulness of his hardships. Uh, how do you do that? How can you constantly remember that you have forgotten something? I think there is a really, really important lesson here for us, dear friends, about our own painful past, our own painful experiences, because it gives us a perspective on what it actually means to forget our most painful memories. And perhaps, perhaps you're wrestling with the reality of life-changing events that you simply cannot forget. These may be terrible, awful sins committed against you, or, or they may be the result of your own sin and foolishness, and the, the, that foolishness continues to haunt you 
You see, these painful memories from your past, though, they continue to affect the way you respond to events and people in the present. You view events and people through the lens of those intensely painful events from your past, and and it just results in ongoing dysfunction in your life. And, you know, you're surrounded by well-meaning people who are constantly telling you, look, just get over it, get over your past, forget about the past. But how do you get, simply forget about such trauma? I mean, there isn't a delete button for your memories, is there? Here's what I think we learned from Joseph. Joseph had learned to reshape the significance of his past by putting it into the context of what God was doing and would do in and through his life. His son's name became a permanent testimony to God's power to redeem our painful pasts. Of course, Joseph would never completely forget his difficult experiences, but from then on, he would remember it through the lens of God's redemptive purposes for his people. You see, God's, he, he would see it in light of, of God's faithfulness and ultimately bringing him through that suffering. And it testified to God's ability to, in the words of the prophet, to, to restore the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. You see, Joseph was learning and We need to learn this too, that God can overwhelm the painful memories of our past with the greater memory of his steadfast faithfulness and grace to us in the midst of our pain with the absolute assurance that he will bring glorious, glorious good even out of the worst of our sufferings. But that's just the first name. So how does, how does this reshaping of our painful memories happen? Well, how did it happen in Joseph's life? I think the name of his second son helps us here. Ephraim, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Notice what, what he says there. God did not deliver Joseph out of the land of his affliction. Friends, God does not promise to deliver us out of our afflictions, at least in this life. God's promise for for Joseph was, was for him to be fruitful in the land of his affliction, in Egypt where God used Joseph and made him into a source of blessing for thousands upon thousands of, of people. And friends, it's often the same for us. In in the midst of our affliction, the Lord is committed to making us fruitful in ourselves and in the lives of others. So here's a man who humbly trusts in his God. Here's a man with a spirit of boldness and perseverance because he is radically God-centered. Here's a man who's learned to see all of his days and his experiences through the redemptive lens of what God would do in his life and through his life. And then finally we see here this chapter ends with us seeing God makes Joseph a source of blessing to others. And friends, this is 
what God is seeking to do in the lives of his people, working in them and through them to bless them and to make them a blessing to others, preeminently, foundationally so in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Joseph is never a mere example for living the Christian life. He is a a picture of the Christ who was to come. Before Joseph could begin to fulfill the calling that God had placed upon his life, he had to endure repeated and long-lasting suffering that would leave on him permanent scars. But you see, after that painful preparation, God used his man to be a source of blessing to the nations of the earth. And you see, in this way, Joseph's life and his experience, it it anticipates and it points forward to Jesus, the one who suffered and then was exalted to be the savior of a needy and desperate world. Jesus is not merely Pharaoh's right-hand man. He is is God's own son, the king of kings and lord of lords and the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But it's the same Jesus before all the nations would gather and come to him for, for life who also learned obedience by what he suffered. And he became a, fruit, he became a, a, a fruitful instrument in God's hand, hands. He, he became fruitful precisely because and through his afflictions. And as his suffering, it brings us through the cross, forgiveness and reconciliation and peace with God. And you know, it's striking, I think, I was thinking about this during the week, that Jesus' resurrected, glorified body still bears the scars of his suffering. The the nail marks are still upon his hands. The scars still upon his side. And those scars still speak about the way painful sacrifices are made purposeful by the fruit that they bear and the redemptive purposes of Almighty God. So Joseph's suffering made him the right man at just the right time, and God led him to the right place. Seven years of plenty came and went, followed by seven years of intense famine. And the text tells us that the the famine wasn't just isolated to the land of Egypt. It, It spread throughout the earth. All of the lands were impacted by this this great famine. People were starving to death and people from all over the world began flocking to Egypt and going to Pharaoh and Pharaoh would say to the people, go to Joseph and do what he says. And anyone who went to Joseph received what they needed. No one went away hungry No one went away empty-handed. Out of his abundance, Joseph was able to provide for the nations of the earth. And that's how this story ends. The nations of the world coming for life to God's man who suffered and is now exalted. 
God's man who has abundance for the peoples of this world. In a world of famine and need where people are dying, there's one man the people can go to. One man the people can go to for life. Isn't that a great statement? Go to Joseph. What he says, do. Go to Joseph and you will live. Friends, I hope you see, I hope you see that Joseph's story speaks of a better name. Jesus' name is written all over Joseph's life. And this is, this is the message at the end of this story. Are you, are you hungry? Are you needy? Are you empty-handed? Go to Jesus and what he says, do. He is the bread of life. And all who feed upon him will never go hungry. All who drink of living waters will never thirst again. So go to the once suffering Savior who has now been raised and exalted to the right hand of God. Because God has one man for the peoples of this world to go to to find everything they need. And this passage assures us that out of, his, out of his own personal abundance, no one who comes to him and bows the knee, confessing him as Savior and Lord, will go away empty-handed. They will receive out of his abundant provision. And my friends, the Lord's Supper points us to that very re- reality. So let's pray as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. Father, thank you again for all that you teach us in this great story. Make us, make us humble people as we confidently trust in you to protect and to provide. Give us a spirit of boldness and perseverance because our lives are centered upon you as the Lord and governor of, of history. And Lord, teach us, teach us wisdom and discernment. Help us to see our past painful experiences and for some of us present experiences. Help us to see these things through the redemptive lens of what you intend to do in us and through us. Help us to see that you intend to get glory for the man of your providing through our lives. I pray that if there is anyone here today who has not gone to Jesus with empty hands, that today would be that day. But as we come today as your people to the Lord's table and remember what Jesus has done for us, I pray that we would find everything we need in him, nourishment and strength to go on living for him. We ask all of these things in and for Christ's sake. Amen.